Our New Covenant reading in our text for the day is taken from the 8th chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin our reading with verse 31 and read through to the end of the chapter. I invite you then to give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant and sufficient word. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Again, Father, in these moments we come before you and we ask, Lord, that we would hear your voice as you summon us to seek your face. And may we respond by the power of your spirit, your face, O Lord, we shall speak. Lord, you have committed this priceless treasure of the gospel to earthen vessels that the excellency might be of you. And and you know the weakness and frailty of men. We have um, not the understanding that you have. We do not know the end from the beginning. And You know, Lord, the frailties of life, that we are sinners like everyone else who stand in pulpits. And yet you have committed this treasure to these earthen vessels that you might be glorified. And so I pray this morning that you will come and use not only me in this pulpit, but in every place where your word is faithfully proclaimed, that you will send forth your word in power, in the power of your spirit, We ask, O Lord, that you will awaken those who are dead in trespasses and sins, that you will raise up those who are bowed down and afflicted with new hope and new comfort, that you would humble those who are lifted up in self-righteousness and pride, and that you would strengthen the weak hands and the knees that are weak. And Lord, we ask that you would be exalted, for we know, O Lord, that you are the one who is worthy of all praise, worship, and adoration, but we are weak and frail and needy people. And so we pray that you will come and feed us with the word of life. We might walk in newness of life by the power of your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would keep your word before our eyes, that Christ Jesus would be exalted, and that he, being lifted up, would draw all men to himself. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking back to uh, my childhood and my children's childhood, maybe you've experienced this, but sometimes uh, they ask really good questions and sometimes they ask really silly questions. 
I was thinking about this or talking about good questions, but many years ago, about this time of year, we had uh, we'd gone out and uh, we had done some Christmas shopping, and my daughter was with us in the car, very small at the time, and there was a truck in front of us, and uh, in the back of the truck there was a dog, and she began asking questions. Daddy, what's the name of the dog? Where's the dog going? Well, why do you think they're going? And on and on it went. And, of course, we had no way of answering these questions. And so it was just frivolous, frivolous questions. But there are also some very good questions. I remember Bunny years ago, uh, of all places, um, at Bob Jones University, not known for the Reformed faith, uh, had a visiting pastor who cited the Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the light just went on. And she said, that is a profound answer. That explains so many things. Of course, it stands everything on its head from what the world says. Uh, The world thinks that God exists for us and we are to glorify ourselves or we're to enjoy him uh, before we glorify him. But here we see that the glory of God comes first and then out of that we begin to enjoy him. And so it put things straight. When we find questions in the Bible, it is important to consider them carefully because those questions are not frivolous like a child's questions. They are intended to to break through some of our obtuseness, our our hard-heartedness, and to bring us back to truth, to remember things that we may well know and yet we do not consider properly. God's Word has the answers. God asked the question, for instance, where were you when I stretched out the heavens? And, of course, that begins to tell us that we really don't know everything, that we are dependent upon the Lord for everything that we do know, and his revelation is true. God's questions require us to consider and then to embrace the answers that he gives to us, and the answer to that question is, we were nowhere. We were in the mind of God, but we had no existence. We exist at the Lord's will and providence. So Paul previously had reminded us of many things. Of course, the book of Romans is a, I think it's my favorite book in all the Bible. It was this book that that I was studying, uh, which brought me to the Reformed faith. I was so grateful for it because it's really the clearest exposition, I think, of the gospel, of the doctrine of salvation. And so grateful as I was delivered from my semi-Pelagianism to come to realize that God is sovereign, and I owe everything to him. And so as we go through the book of Romans, we see the great doctrines of of sin and depravity and our hopelessness apart from God's sovereign grace and mercy. We see that the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, but the righteousness of God is also revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by grace that we are saved through faith. And that, not of ourselves, is the gift of God, so that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who is sanctifying us by his Spirit that we put away the works of the flesh and and put on Christ and put on righteousness, that we don't walk according to the flesh, but according 
to the Spirit. And yet in all of these things, we also see the Apostle Paul says the Christian life is not without its hardships and without its afflictions. In fact, he tells us that indeed there are great afflictions and in fact in this very chapter, uh, he tells us in verse 17, talking about being heirs of Christ, adoption, and one of those great blessings that he gives to us, if children, heirs also with Christ, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then he goes on and talks about uh, the things that he endured as a believer, as one walking in the faith. And so, while it's easy to um, apprehend the the greatness of God's grace and salvation when things are going well, uh, sometimes we can call those things into question, especially in the midst of affliction, when our faith is tried. And so, Paul reminds us that these worldly afflictions are not inconsistent with a state of grace. In fact, they can be emblems of that state of grace. And so he asks these questions that we are to ask ourselves not only when things are going well, but also when our faith is tried. We ask these questions and we are settled in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's consider these questions. The, the first question I, I call the, the challenge question. There's a challenge that is given to us in the first part of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Now, we can just blow by that. But you see, that question is a serious question because he has just spent the first seven and a half chapters telling us the great things that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his Spirit and because of his his electing love before the foundation of the world, coming down into a lost world, a world filled with sinners who are not only ignorant of him but hostile to him, and yet he redeems a people for himself and sets us apart and sets glory before us and, and promises us life in Christ, not just for time but for all eternity. Well, what should we say to these things? You see, this question puts before us everything the Apostle Paul has said previously. And when you read this question, that's what you ought to do. You ought to go back and think about all those things that God had told us in the first seven and a half chapters of the book of Romans. It's a summary question. You need to respond to the truth revealed. What shall we say to these things? In a sense... It's a midterm exam for the, for the book of Romans. It's a midterm exam. Go back. What do you remember? What are you settled on with regard to these things? The question demands an answer. Now, I want to point out to you that these questions are um, addressed to believers, at least as far as the answer is concerned. But I want to tell you today also it's really addressed to all people because the gospel goes to all people. And these things being so, what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ and is doing by the work of his Spirit today, what should anyone say to these things? Well, the believer's answer is going to be one thing, and that's what the Apostle Paul sets before us. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you should be considering what should you say. How could you and how would you reject so great a salvation?
What should you say? What shall we all say to these things? The question demands an answer. And we should be those who are able to articulate a response to God. What should we say? And we ought to be able, in the midst of afflictions and weak faith, to be able to articulate a response to ourselves. How often does the psalmist speak to his own soul? He's troubled and he's afflicted, and yet he would speak to himself and remind himself of that which God had spoken and articulate a response to others as well who may be going through these things. And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, we've received comfort in order that we may be able to comfort others in similar situations. And this answer to this will really be a test of your faith. A response of faith will change the way you respond to affliction. And a response of unbelief will leave you groping in the dark, ignorant of what God is doing in your life or repudiating it and rebelling against it. The challenge question. Then the comparative question. And that follows in verse 31st, the 31st verse. If God is for us, who is against us? That's a good question, isn't it? And of course, the The question that is given there for the believer, we could say that since God is for us, who could be against us? And you may be sitting, well, you know, I have a pretty good list of things and people that are against us. And it's not hard to come up with the list. But you see, it's a comparative thing. God, if God is for you, who can be against you? And this is a question that puts things in comparison that the Apostle Paul tells us that he considers these light afflictions not worthy to be compared to the glory that should follow. And so stop and think about this question asks or puts before us the one who has taken your part. Who is this God who is for you if you're a believer? And, of course, we don't have time to even begin to scratch the surface about the character of God. But just the summary, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Just take a few moments today as you go to your homes to think about those attributes that are given in that very concise question and answer God is all-powerful. And so we think about all the powers in this world that may be against the church. And there are powerful institutions and beings. We think about Satan himself, second only to God in the beginning, who is a roaring lion seeking who may may devour. And certainly he is a powerful enemy. He is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, blinding many to the gospel truth, keeping them in thrall to his awful domain. And yet he is nothing. He can do nothing apart from this God who is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. You may think that no one has ever endured what you are having to endure, and yet He is all-knowing. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. And in fact, 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who took upon himself a true human nature and a true human body, and he knows everything that you endure. He endured all things for us. He's all-knowing. He knows your weaknesses, your frailties, your joys, your temptations. He knows them all, and he is for you. He's all-wise. He does not do anything that is not necessary and does not accomplish its purpose. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, but how many times have we gone down our road and, and have been wondering what God is doing, and we look back and we see that God has done all things well. Bunny and I have been uh, contemplating these things uh, as we have had opportunity to spend time together, and we think back and we say we wouldn't do anything differently if we had it to do over again. And uh, I, we, we think about those things that were probably the most troubling to us in our lives. And it's those very things that God did that were troubling to us, confusing to us. We look back on them and we see not all of them, but in many of them, particularly the most glaring ones, we look back and see, praise God for those afflictions, for they have worked a far greater weight of glory. And as we approach the end of our lives, God has appointed that for us as well. And we thank God that he is all wise and that his wisdom is for us. He's all good. There is only one good in all the universe. And everything that he does is by definition good because he is. God is all love. God is love. We just touched this. We could dwell on this, but we don't have time. But think about this one who is for you. And then think about the relative insignificance of all opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Who or what can frustrate Almighty God who has chosen you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him? That one who prays for you, the Lord Jesus in the garden, prays that you might be with him, that you might see his glory. This is the very Son of God who gave himself for you, and he's the one who intercedes for you. Certainly the world order is under God's control. There is nothing that men can do that God has not appointed. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithersoever he desires. He is the one that can harden Pharaoh's heart, and he is the one who can make Cyrus issue a decree to accomplish the decree of the Lord. Great men of the world are as nothing in the sight of God. Your sin nature is nothing that can stand before the Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness. Satan is a defeated enemy, and and death itself is God's servant to usher you into his nearer presence. If God is for us, who can be against us? And think about the assurance that God has taken your part. Because he goes on and he says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely 
give us all things. He's given us the greater. Will he give you anything less? You do not need anything else. He will not leave the work undone. He freely give us, gave us the greatest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son for your salvation and poured out upon him the full measure of his wrath. Not holding back, but intentionally delivering him up for us all. That is um, something to contemplate, isn't it? That God poured out upon him the wrath that belonged to you. And Jesus, the second person of the Godhead in the flesh, willingly gave himself up to the unmetered and unmeasured infinite wrath of God to accomplish the redemption of his people. I, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that, uh, that awe me, but one of, those, uh, one of those things that awes me is that verse which tells us that he became sin for us, that we may be, might be made the righteousness of God in him. In those awful moments when, the, when the God's wrath was poured out upon us, the Son of God who knew no sin became sin, and he experienced all the ugliness and the corruption of men. And as the sin-bearer took upon himself the worst and the most heinous sins, your worst and most heinous sins, And he bore the infinite wrath of God that you might not have to. You know, we often, and I think one of the sad things that our world faces is is isolation and and being being separated and being alone. I want to tell you, because it, it strikes me again, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are never alone. You will never be separated, ultimately, from God because Jesus Christ was separated from God and became the object of his infinite wrath. And that, that I don't understand that. I do not understand that. But if that, is, that being the case, and it is so, if he did not withhold his only son and the Lord Jesus Christ did not hold back from giving himself to suffer the wrath of God for your sake. Do you think he's not, do you think he's going to withhold anything necessary from you? That's a question to consider. And so you're, you know, the Apostle Paul says, that's why he can say, I don't, I consider the, the, the sufferings, the afflictions of this life to be nothing in comparison to what has been purchased in Christ. God spares nothing necessary to bring you to the goal. He will, with him, freely give you all things. But I think this question also implies another question, again, for any who might be apart from Christ. The inverse of that, if God is against you, then who 
could be for you. If God is against you, it does not matter who stands with you. But you see, this is written to us that we might be in Christ. Then we have the legal questions in verses 33 and 34. These questions about, well, God is holy and righteous, and what about the justice of God? And he asks these questions, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Legal questions. We've offended God's holy law. God is just and must see sin punished. He's righteous. How can these things be brought together? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet in Christ. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Those things which seem to be opposite are brought together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first question, whose accusation can secure a guilty verdict. You see, who is there who can bring a charge against God-elect? And just like the previous question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, We can think of some answers, can't we? We can think of some answers of things that are against us. You could be accused by many about many offenses. Our consciences accuse us. I don't know about you, but when I look to myself, I have to say there's not a whole lot of hope. I've dealt with young people and other people dealing with assurance of salvation, and and invariably, and myself included, invariably what that is, we are looking at ourselves and we see our sin, and we should see our sins. We look into into the light of Scripture as the mirror, it reflects what we really are. As we look and compare ourselves to the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as Pastor Wilburn said, Luther pointed out to us, yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are a people who have the power of sin broken, but, but we are still sinners, and we still wrestle with sin and will be until the day we die. So the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, in his last letter, I believe, could write to Timothy and say, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. And I don't think that the Apostle Paul was being melodramatic. I think that Paul, as a man who was greatly sanctified and filled with the Spirit, uh, simply had, I think he was certainly more holy than he was when he began his walk, but he had a very, how can I put it, he had a much clearer view of his sin than he did when he was younger. I don't know how you are, but I've gone along in life, and all of a sudden, reading Scripture, I've discovered things of which I was guilty that I had no idea of which I was guilty. It was ignorance. And so the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul a greater view of his, of his sinfulness. And, and I've been reminded reading, uh, reading John Owen's work on the Holy Spirit, um, just the, the pride and the arrogance that every, the, the corruption of the human heart is so devastating that even as a believer, every impulse toward any good thing, toward any righteousness, the impulse to worship, the impulse to pray, the impulse to seek his face is all the work of the Spirit of God. And if you're anything like me, there are seasons when the Lord, when I begin to think, 
that I think I've got this Christian life thing all figured out, and the Lord simply says, let's see how you do without my spirit for a little while. You ever had that experience? And you say, how in the world could I have done that or thought that or said that? How in the I'll tell you, because that's your sin, remaining sin, and we are so dependent upon the Spirit of God. And so our consciences accuse us. Men who are offended can accuse us. We are grateful when, when we encounter one another. Let a man, righteous man, strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Oh, Lord, do not let my head refuse it. That's a good thing. But you see, that's an accusation, and we can respond to that properly. And so there are men who can accuse you because we sin against God and we sin against men. Satan can accuse you. He is the accuser of the brethren. And if all of those can't accuse you, then God can accuse you because he knows our hearts. Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? But God, as judge, has rendered his verdict already in justification because of what Christ has done. God loved you when you were sinners, gave his son as the substitute. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And God has rendered his judgment for all eternity, not guilty. And so there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and no accusation against you will be prosecuted in God's courtroom because God has declared you innocent. And who can execute a sentence of condemnation? For there is, therefore, now no condemnation. There's no one who is able to condemn because the judge of the world is the one who gave himself that you might not stand in the judgment. The the judge, the prosecuting attorney, is also your advocate. He's the one who is your attorney that gives satisfaction. The one to whom God has given all judgment in this world is the one who has paid the penalty. He's paid the full penalty in his death. He has provided the full righteousness in his obedience. And Christ's resurrection demonstrates God's satisfaction with Christ's payment, that God accepts the payment in full. And Christ's intercession is conclusive. I write these things unto you that you may not sin, John says. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I was thinking uh, earlier this morning, the apostle Peter in his pride said, Lord, though everyone else should forsake you, I won't. And of course, we know what happened. But I love what the Lord Jesus said to him, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Isn't that not what we need? The judge prays for us, and he pleads his own blood, his own righteousness. And lastly, the relationship question. Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? 
I was reminded of these things, and I'm so grateful for the Lord's grace to me when I still remember um, many years ago the marriage vows that Bunny and I took before the Lord and before his purpose. But we promise to live together for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. While that marriage covenant has been made with us in the Lord Jesus Christ, only it's not until death do us part, but through all eternity. In sickness and in health, better, worse, joy, sorrow, plenty, want, and in this case, life and death. That marriage covenant with your Lord and Savior, the great bridegroom, will never be broken. His love cannot be severed. So this question then assumes all the answers to the previous questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there who condemns? Well, after answering all of those questions, nothing. Nothing. This question addresses all the manifold afflictions faced by believers that we see in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it's written for thy sake. For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. That's from the 44th Psalm, which we read. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It is not because of God's anger or wrath that these things were taking place. They were great afflictions. The Apostle Paul was one who was greatly afflicted throughout his life, but it was not because of God's anger. But all the general pressures of life from both within and without, tribulation and distress, and particular sources of pressure, whether it's persecution, famine, poverty, danger, peril, violence, whatever it might be. And those things separate you from the love of Christ. They're real. They don't go away. They were very real. But the answer emphasizes God's unfailing love. Nothing will be able to turn God's love away from you. The afflictions of life are those things which God uses us to draw us near to him, not to drive us away from him. In the 44th Psalm, that records the great salvation of Israel historically, and the sons of Korah express their confidence in the continuing fidelity and, and progress of God's kingdom and yet they express concern for the current setbacks and disappointments. You've forsaken us, Lord. You don't go with our armies. What's wrong? And yet they affirm that those setbacks were not punishments for apostasy. If we had forgotten the name of the Lord, if we'd turned away to idols, then you would certainly know that. But they come to recognize that this is the course of those who live godly in Christ Jesus and call upon God to be their deliverer. So, Whatever afflictions you may face or whatever trials, ask yourselves these questions. What 
shall you say to these things? If God before you, who can be against you? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who has justified us. And who shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And what's the conclusion? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Long list there, and we don't have time to look at them, but I'll just point you to the one, nor any other created thing. That pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Because there's only one that is not created. Everything else is created. And there's nothing, if God is for you, that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what's your answer to these questions? Does it take you back to the foundation? Answer the questions every day. Answer them every day. And particularly in those seasons of afflictions when your faith is tried. And I would ask you, if you can't answer these questions the way the apostle does, if you can't answer that, these questions with that resounding affirmation that he has become absolutely convinced and persuaded that nothing is able to separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, then I simply ask you why? Why would you neglect so great salvation? Why? That, that's not reasonable. That's just pure rebellion. And so I plead with you, as the Lord Jesus Christ would plead with you, be reconciled to God, that you might be able to affirm all of these questions, that God will be for you, so that nothing could be against you. Let's pray together. Father, you know the, the frailty of those who preach your word, and this, uh, this subject, these verses before us this day are full of glory and grace. And I pray, Lord, that you will take the free, feeble, frail word, words that were spoken this morning by your servant in this pulpit, that you would take them by your spirit, bring them to mind, that you will call your people to yourself, and that we might be reminded that you who did not withhold your only son from us, but freely delivered him up for us all. Will with him freely give us all things necessary in this life and the one to come. Lord, write these things upon our hearts. Bring them to mind in those seasons of weak faith. Strengthen our hearts. Glorify your Son, Father. Bring them about. We pray that you would hear the prayers of your Son who intercedes for us even now. We might be brought into that eternal glory, not with any boasting in ourselves, but all praise and glory given to you, the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.